Thank you, Carl. Well, it's a, a, a joy and a privilege to be here. I've heard uh, uh, much of this church over the years, and some of my good friends uh, are part of this church. And so it's uh, uh, wonderful um, to be here. Um, and, I mean, the only, the only thing that's uh, a, a negative is, you know, like, I'm... 59 years old now. I'll be 60 my next birthday. And it's taken this long to be invited <laughs> to the church. But I don't bear grudges. I, I let go of... That's a kind of a joke. I'm only playing. Um, we, um, uh, lots of us, uh, what we long for, many of us, is two things. One is greater intimacy with the Lord, isn't it? We long to to come closer to him, to know him better, to love him more, to know his love for us. And the second is we long to see him moving in power in our world. We long to see the miraculous, not to give us a thrill, but in order to change people's lives. Because God does miracle not to entertain us, but to transform us. And the miracles are for transformation. And uh, what the question I want to try and look at and try and give a little bit of an answer to, it won't be a complete answer, is how does that happen? And uh, in order to begin, I want to go uh, to Jesus' first miracle, um, which is in John chapter 2. Now, my two favorite miracles, I have to say, are this one, where Jesus turns water into wine by the gallon and the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, put those two together, and it's my dream come true. But here we are in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now, isn't that typical of a mum? Isn't that exactly what they do? They don't, if you notice, they don't actually tell you what they want. They don't say, uh, can you bring the shopping in from the car? They say, oh, there's a lot of shopping in the car. They don't say, can you load the dishwasher? They say, oh, the dishwasher needs loading again. Well, Jesus' mum was no different. They've run out of wine. And Jesus responded like any normal son would. What's that got to do with me? In fact, what he said was this. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And do you know in the, some of the translations, uh, they, they, they put dear woman because the translators didn't want it to seem that Jesus was, was being rude to his mum. Uh, but, but actually in, in the original Greek, there's no dear. It really is woman. And uh, no lesser authority than D.A. Carson uh, points out that this is at best um, a mild rebuke Jesus gives his mum. But then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, I first read that when I was 15 and I'd just become a Christian. And I thought, that is a really good line. So I thought, I'm going to use that. So the next time my mum said to me, Michael, I want you to tidy your room. I looked her in the eye and I said, mum, my hour has not yet come. <laughs> it didn't work for me. But listen to what Mary says. His mother said, don't talk like that to your mother. She didn't say that. His mother said to the servants, 
do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And that's the title of this morning's talk. The secret is obedience, or at least one of the secrets. Jesus said, do whatever he tells you. Now, uh, Mary said, do whatever he tells you. Now, for, uh, for a while, I thought that meant to do whatever he tells me when I agree with what he tells me. To do whatever he tells me when I think what he tells me is sensible. When it's not too risky or when I understand it. But that's not obedience. That's happening to agree with Jesus. Obedience is doing whatever he tells us when it doesn't make sense to us at the time. When we can't be sure of the result humanly. When we don't completely get it. When we would rather not. And this is what happens straight away. As soon as Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, Jesus says to them, now you see these huge stone water jars, there's six of them, fill them with water. Now if I had been one of the servants at that point, I might have said something like this, excuse me Mr. Christ, but did you not listen to your mum? We, we heard what she said, she said well, they've run out of wine, what we have is a wine deficit not a water shortage. We have loads of San Pellegrino. What we need is Chateau Neuf de Pape. Now, if I had said that to Jesus, I think he might have said to me, excuse me, Pilavachi, but did you not listen to what my mum said to you? Do whatever I tell you. And even though they didn't understand, they filled the jars with water. What are we doing? We don't need more water. But then it gets worse or better. Jesus says, now I want one of you to fill a glass, fill a cup of this dirty water and take it to the master of ceremonies. Can you imagine the slave who drew the short straw? Oh no, oh no, this is bad news. This is bad news. I'm going to get my head kicked in. This is really bad. But I wonder if out of the corner of his eye, he saw Mary looking at him. I better do what he tells me. He took it to the master of ceremonies. He had a drink. And the master of ceremonies said to the bridegroom in front of everyone, you've left the best wine till the end. This is fantastic. And everybody in that room thought that that was the best wine that had been kept for the end, except the servants. There's a little line in this gospel, and it says, but the servants knew. The servants knew where the wine came from. And you know, I think there's an intimacy in that. It, the only people who knew what was really going on were the servants and Jesus. And I don't know, because don't you sometimes wish the book was a DVD? I, lots of times I wish the book was a DVD. And, and I just wonder, I can't be sure of this, but I wonder if, you know, when everyone was saying, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Oh, smell the bouquet. Just, oh, just, this is incredible. I wonder if the servants were kind of looking at each other going, it's dirty water. It's dirty. What's going on? And then I just, I just can't help thinking that maybe Jesus looked at them and quietly went, <laughs> winked at them. Don't you think he would have done that? He'd have given them a little wink. There was an intimacy that they had with him at that moment at the place of obedience. 
At the place of their obedience, there was intimacy and there was a miracle. I could go to many other places uh, to look at this, uh, but I just want to go to one story, one more story, and it's found in Matthew chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 22. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a little boy's picnic, and then we read these words. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Now, do you know, I've read this passage, I don't know, hundreds of times in the 43 years I've been a Christian. Hundreds of times. And it's only in the last couple of years, two, three years, I've noticed things that I, does that happen to you? You know, how many times have I read this? How did I miss this? Now I've seen it, it's so obvious. Well, here's the first thing that I never noticed. It actually says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. It happened like this. Uh, Excuse me, chaps. Um, uh, Would you get into the boat? I want you to row to the other side of the Sea of Galilee overnight, and I'll join you in the morning. Um, How are you going to get over there, Lord? Um, uh, Don't worry. I've got my own transport sorted out. Um, Excuse me, Jesus, but the boys and I, we've just been on the internet, and uh, the weather forecast says it's going to be heavy storms overnight, and some of us are fishermen, and this is where we do our job, and we know that the Sea of Galilee overnight rowing in heavy storms is a bit dangerous. If it's all the same to you, we'll go with you in the morning. Get in the boat. He made them get in the boat. The Greek is a strong term. It's not a mild suggestion. He made them get in the boat. What does that mean? That means he deliberately sent them into a storm. Sometimes Jesus deliberately sends us into storms in life. Why? Because he hates us? Because he wants to do us harm? Absolutely not. Because he loves us and he knows that it's very often in the middle of storms that we come the closest to him or we experience his closeness to us. It's often in the middle of the storms of our lives that we see the greatest miracles because we have to choose to depend on him. And so they rode into the storm and uh, um, rode, they rode, yeah, rode rode like a horse, rode like a boat. Um, And then we read this. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now this is in the middle of the storm, just a, a, a short while before morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Do you, do you know how many times in the Gospels the disciples didn't recognize Jesus? It's incredible. It's actually hilarious if you look at it. A lot of times after he rose from the dead, and in that that occasion, it was disappointment stopped them from recognizing Jesus. When you're full of disappointment, you often don't recognize Jesus when he comes to you. But here in the middle of the storm, when they were full of fear, they didn't recognize Jesus, and they thought Jesus was a ghost. So often, We don't recognize Jesus when he comes to us because fear can blind our eyes. So what does he do? He speaks to them. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. 
And you know they recognized him when he spoke. That's why it's important to be people of the book. That's why it's important to listen to his voice. And you know he just said three things. He said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And and it's like a sandwich. The, the, the two pieces of bread are very similar. Take courage, don't be afraid. What makes the sandwich special is the filling in the middle, which is it is I. The reason they could take courage and not be afraid is because it was him. It was, it was him. And he said, it is I. And you know, in the Greek, I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar. I, I'm just a jumped up youth worker. I've never studied theology really. Um, but I am Greek. And, and in the Greek, it's ero ime. And it literally, ero ime, is, literally means it's me, it's me. Or I am, I am. He says, take courage. I am, I am. Don't be afraid. He reveals himself to them. Now, I love, I love, I love Peter. And if I may say this, and I say this in humility, I think there are certain similarities between myself and the Apostle Peter. I really do. And I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm rocky or the church is built on anything I've ever said. Uh, in this instance and in this instance alone, there are similarities. Um, we both open our mouths before our brains are in gear. And this is what happens. He suddenly realizes, Peter says, Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then Peter suddenly realizes, it's Jesus. And before he can stop himself, listen to this. He says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, I just imagine it happened like this. Ah, Lord, if it's you, huh, tell me to come to you on the water. Oh. And then, before he could say, only joking, Jesus says, come on then. And I don't know, I may be reading into the original Greek a little bit here, but I suspect the others were going, off you go, mate, big mouth, big mouth, off you go, let's see what you can do. And Peter was committed. Then we read, then Peter got down out of the boat walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Peter gets down from the boat. Now, I've, I've, I've read this story, like I said, loads of times. I've heard so many talks on this. I've given talks on this. And you know, the talks I've given are that this is Pete's great failure. That, that, that you know, he, he started off looking at Jesus, but then he noticed the, the waves and the effect of the wind, and he got scared. He took his eyes off Jesus, and he began to sink, and it was a near disaster, and Peter had to save him. I... I I, I've, you know, the way, the way many of us have read this story is like this. Peter sees the wind and the waves. He starts to sink. He's drowning. And he shouts out, Lord, Lord, save me. And Jesus looks at Peter and he thinks, oh no, Pete's drowning. What am I going to do? I need him for the Acts of the Apostles. 
So Jesus dives into the water and does the front crawl. He gets behind Peter. He uses a technique he learned at Nazareth swimming pool, life-saving classes. And he shouts to the guys in the boat, quick, throw the rubber ring, throw some ropes. We've got to save Pete's life. I need him a bit longer. And then he gets into the side of the boat. They drag Peter on. Jesus gets on into the boat. He's soaking wet. He gets on top of Peter and he does mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And as Peter splutters back to life, Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? That's how I've read it for years. For years I've read it like that as Pete's great failure. That's not what it says. How did I read that so many times? That's actually not what it says. What it says is this. Yes, Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, having got out of the boat, and he starts to sink. But then the first thing he says, the first thing, is, Lord, save me. Now, if it was me, I would first of all have tried to save myself. Then I would have tried to get my friends to save me. Then I would have called, you know, the local pastors to come and save me. And as a last resort, okay, Lord, you have a go. Peter does that first. And do you know what happens? Jesus doesn't dive in after him. It says, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Do you know what happened? Jesus reached out his hand. He took Peter's hand and he lifted him up. And you know what amazing thing happened? They walk back to the boat together, walking on the water, hand in hand. I don't think this was Peter's greatest failure. I suspect it was Peter's greatest success. He was the one that got to walk on the water, holding hands with Jesus. Now, I suspect Pete lived off this story for the rest of his life. You know, for years to come at church planting parties or cocktail parties if you're an Anglican. You know, he, he, you know someone would say to Peter, Pete, tell us the story of, 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 of how you walked on the water with Jesus. And I imagine Peter, oh no, not that again. Oh, I've told this story so many times. Oh, how many times do I need to tell this story? All right, I'll tell it one more time. I'll, I'll just say it one more time. Well, um, it, it was like this. We were, we were rowing um, uh, in the middle of the night on the Sea of Galilee, and the boys got pretty scared, actually, because it was big waves. And I mean, I was okay, but they were scared. And, and then Jesus um, uh, came, came towards us. He was walking on the water. And, um, and basically, I said, oh, Lord, if that really is you, tell me to come to you, and, and I'll join you on the water. And he said, come on then. And I got out of the boat, and I started walking towards Jesus. Um, the, the next bit's a little bit hazy. I can't quite remember. But basically, to cut a long story very short, the two of us, the Lord and I, in the middle of the storm, through the waves, we were walking on the water. Did I mention we were holding hands, the two of us, the Lord and I? We were holding hands. And we, what was it like? Well, I don't, how do I explain what it was like? It was, it was liquid, but it was firm. It was slightly bouncy, 
but it was like, like a rubbery feeling. I don't know. I mean, how do you explain it? There, there's only myself and Jesus who have ever experienced it. And well, Jesus has gone back to heaven now. So I suppose I'm the only one left on earth who can possibly explain what it was like walking on the water. Yes, we just went up and down on the waves. It was quite fun, really. It was like a gentle roller coaster. Did I mention, did I mention to you that we were holding hands? And honestly, to this day, I can't tell you for sure whether he was holding me up or I was holding him up. I mean, we were just, do you know how I know? Do you know how I know that he said that? The, the reason I know he said that is because I would have said that if it was me. And so would most of you. I think Pete lived off that story for the rest of his life. And here's the point I want to make. When we are obedient and we step out in faith, that, well, it certainly happens for me, I think for virtually every time there's a moment where it feels like we're sinking. There's a moment where it feels like we're drowning. What have I done? This is dirty water. What have I done? I'm going to drown in the Sea of Galilee. And that's the place where the intimacy happens. Peter had the most intimate. Do you know, I think, I think at the end when he's telling the story, I bet, I bet there were times when he said, um, uh, James, John, Andrew, is there anything you want to add to the story? Oh, no, sorry, I forgot. You never got out of the boat, did you? It was just me who walked on the water with Jesus. It was his great success. He had that, the greatest intimacy with his Savior, the greatest miracle you could imagine. It happened at the point of his seeming weakness. Now, there's a book that's been doing the rounds uh, for years in the church, and, I mean, it's... It's like you can't be a proper Christian unless you've read it. And I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking, there's a book called The Five Love Languages. I mean, everyone seems to have read it. And you know they've done now the five love languages for married people, for engaged people, for single people. Pretty soon it'll be for blue-eyed people. And, and basically the, the, the theme is um, that we all operate in one of five love languages. Um, and we give and receive love, and, uh, and it's different for each of us. And for some, it's touch. Uh, for some, it's gifts. Uh, for some, it's quality time. For some, it's words of affirmation. And for some, is acts of service. Now, when I first read that, I, I froze. Because I thought, oh no, what's wrong with me? None of them is me. I have a sixth love language that isn't in the book. My love language is food. <laughs> Tell me you love me. It means nothing to me. Go stick your love somewhere. But buy me a chicken shish kebab and I am yours for life. That's a little hint for later on. <laughs> Did you know that God has a love language? He does. God's love language is obedience. If you love me, you will obey my commands, says Jesus in John 15. Also in John 15, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And the point I want to make is it never, it never feels great. It's, it's an act of dependence. It's not an act of independence. 
It's an act of falling on him. It feels like you're drowning, but that's the place where you come to the greatest intimacy with him. That's the place where everything changes. And it, it works out differently for each, one, for each of us. It sounds like, like you as a church, just from the little I've, I've heard from Carl, you know, you're at that place. You, you planted all, these, all these, these churches, and it's like, oh my goodness, well, what's going to happen next? What an exciting place to be. What an exciting place to be. Lord, hold my hand. And do you know the last bit on that is, you know how we read that bit when Jesus says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Why do we always give God an angry voice in the scripture? I mean, he was holding Pete's hand. Do you really think while he was holding his hand, walking on the water, he said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? I don't think he said it like that at all. I think he said it more like this. Oh, Pete, you faithless one. You silly sausage. Why did you doubt me? Why didn't you? Do you think I was going to let you drown, you twit? I wasn't going to. I think it was more that tone. We always give God an angry voice. He loves it when we step out. Now, in the five minutes I've got left, I just want to tell you just a, a few ways it works for me and it's different to you because of the job I do and what and what the Lord said to me and so we all work it out in our own lives in our own individual lives but I want to say this because I want you to know how it really is not how it seems a few years ago and I felt the Lord saying to me um, I, I want you to trust me more and to step out in meetings when I tell you and to say what I give you and I was like a little bit not offended, but hurt, because I thought, well, I do. And then as I thought about it, I realized I don't. What I did was I put it through the grid of does it make sense? I put it through the grid of, of you know, what are the risks? And the Lord said to me, trust me. And my first response was, Lord, what if I get it wrong? And the truth is, I've, I've worked out if I get it wrong, nobody dies. No, nobody has yet. I just might look a bit silly. Well, I've spent most of my life looking silly. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it's no different. But if it's Jesus, if it's him, something amazing happens. And, and I remember one of the first times was I was in a meeting in St. Albans, and there were about 400 people there. And uh, at the end of, 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 of the talk, people were getting prayed for. And I just felt the Lord say to me, there's someone here um, who gets fuzzy heads on the left-hand side of their face, and they get, uh, and it gets the left-hand side gets fuzzy, and it comes and it goes, and they've got it at the moment, and they've had it for years. And in my in my head, I thought that's um, uh, that must be a migraine, and I, I thought that there's 400 people here. What are the odds of someone in 400 having a migraine and feeling it's on the left-hand side? I'd say 50-50, 50% chance of getting it right. I like the odds, I'll give it. That's the honest truth. That's the honest truth. But you know the Lord who is gracious and compassionate and merciful and glorious, he's also sneaky when he wants to be. So do you know what he did? He waited till I say that, and then he put the last thought into my head. And the last thought was this. And it's got something to do with their sister. And before I could stop myself, I said, and it's got something to do with your sister. 
immediately I thought, you stupid idiot, you moron, you had a 50% chance of getting a response. How can someone get migraines, get the fuzzy heads on the left-hand side for years, and it's got something to do with their sister? How could it possibly, does their sister hit them over the head with a frying pan, you idiot? And I was going, and then I turned around, and I saw this young lady standing at the front here, and I looked at her, and I said, what are you doing there? I promise you. And, and she said, that's me. And I thought maybe she didn't hear the sister bit. And I just, I, I went away from the microphone and I said, because I was curious, I said, and does it have something to do with your sister? And she said, yes. She said, it's not a migraine. She said, it's from brain damage. Uh, she said, um, I was an emergency birth. I nearly died in the womb and they got me out just in time. I'd stopped breathing and then they got me breathing again. And in that short time I wasn't breathing, I got a little bit of brain damage. And one of the ways it shows is regularly I get this fuzzy numbness on the left-hand side of my face. And then she said this, but the thing is, my twin sister didn't make it. She died in the womb and I lived. And then she started sobbing. And she said, for the 27 years of my life, I felt guilty that the wrong sister survived that I took my twin's life away and I've always felt that I shouldn't be here. Well, we could pray with her and God began to set her free of something more than the fuzzy head but the agony that she'd been in all her life. And the honest truth was, guys, I was, I was the most surprised person there. Oh, huh? really? Really? There was another a crazy one uh, from about three years ago, four years ago, um, uh, we were at our Momentum event. And um, our Momentum event, it was for 20s and 30s. And, and in the middle of the meeting, I had this word. And when I say I had this word, it's not like, hear ye, hear ye, God calling Mike, are you receiving me? It was like, <laughs> tablet of stone on its way down, duck. It was more like, oh, I've just had a thought. That's an interesting thought. Where did that thought come from? That surprises me. I, well, is that you, Lord, or is it indigestion? And in, in my case, quite often, as you can see, it will be indigestion. But I won't know until I say it. And so this thought came into my head, and there's someone here um, who's, um, uh, there's, there's, there's someone here who's having an affair with a pastor in their church. As soon as I got that, I was like, oh, no, 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 no way. We're not going there not a chance. And I started saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm not giving that out because it goes against our guidelines. <laughs> it goes against our values. Can you believe that? I'm still alive. You know, it goes, you know, I'm not, you know, and, and it's, not a, it's not a strengthening, encouraging and comforting word. And you know, then the Lord said to me, Mike, it's not my judgment, it's my mercy. And for a moment, he opened a window in my heart to his love and his compassion. And I wanted to double up. It's the only way I can describe it. And then I thought, okay. And I remember saying to them, well, how do you want me to give it? You know, do I say, uh, I think there's someone here, you're having an affair with a pastor in your church. Would you like to come forward now? <laughs> and then, of course, my job is to try and work out pastorally how to do it. So I said, I could be wrong here, but I think the Lord's saying, there's someone here, you're having an affair with a pastor in your church, and it's not his judgment, it's his mercy. At any time during this meeting, my friend Ali 
will be at the side of the stage. Just come and say to her, or at the end, or if you can't, go to the chat room later and tell someone there. At the end of the meeting, this 19-year-old girl, young lady, came forward to Ali. She started sobbing. She said, it's me. She said, I've been having an affair with the youth pastor in our church, and he's married with three children. And she said, I've been so ashamed, and I've tried to stop, but I can't. And he says that it, I should, we shouldn't stop. And she said, I nearly didn't come to this conference. And then she said this, and it blew me away. She said, as I was driving here to Momentum, I said to God, I said, God, I'm too ashamed to tell anyone about this. If you want me out of this relationship, you're going to have to tell someone on the platform about me. My friends, Richard and Prue, prayed with her and talked with her for the next three days. She's out of that relationship. Her life has turned around. And I came that close to not saying it. I felt I was sinking. I felt I was sinking. But God did it. But God did it. One more. Just one more and we're going to pray. And this was the most scary one. It was, uh, again, I think two years ago. The dates get muddled up. But it was during one of the festivals, the youth festival, Soul Survivor. And uh, um, I I was, at the end of the worship, I was going to speak on the gift of prophecy. And um, I was just getting ready. And I just felt this thought came into my head. There's someone here called Sam. He he doesn't know me. um, But he said to his friend this morning, um, if they invite people to come forward tonight... Uh, um, uh, to become Christians, I might go forward. And the thing about that was that the night before, we made an invitation for people to become Christians, and about 200 young people became Christians, and we were rejoicing over that. And he said that, I felt the will say the next morning. So I was like, well, I'll say that at the end of my talk, and I'll invite people to become Christians, and by the way, if there's someone called Sam, then blah, 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 you come forward as well. And the Lord said, no, I want you to say it now. And again, the battle was, was but, but Lord, what, what if I got it wrong? What if there isn't a Sam? What if there's a Sam and he doesn't come forward in front of 8,000 people? You know, what if, what if, what if? And the Lord said, no, I want you to do it now. And it's like, but Lord, if no one comes forward, then I've got to preach on the gift of prophecy. How's anyone going to listen to me? They'll think I'm a false prophet. You know, and, and, and I felt, and, but then it was, I knew I had to. And so I said, before I speak, I think there might be someone here called Sam. And you said to your friend this morning, if they make an invitation for people to become Christians, then I think um, uh, I might go forward tonight. And I said, well, we're going to wait for you, Sam. Where are you? Why don't you come forward now? I stood there and nobody moved. I died in the next few moments. It was like there were 8,000 pairs of eyes looking at me. And all I could think of was, how do I transition? How do we get, I can't do the gift of prophecy. What do I do, the prodigal son? I did that last night. Oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> and then you start doing bargains, you know, with God. You know, please, I'll, I'll, I'll be nice from now on if you just. And then after ages, this kid got up and started walking. And people around started clapping. And I thought, thank you, Lord. He walked 10 paces. And then he sat down next to a girl he obviously fancied. 
and I wanted to kill him. <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I prayed the prayer I always pray when I'm in terrible, terrible trouble and nothing else will work. I prayed for the second coming. I said, <laughs> Lord, return now. End the world now. You're going to do it sometime if you really love me. If you really care for me, do it now. But of course, he didn't do it then, because if he did, we wouldn't be here, would we? Although one or two of you might be. But anyway, that's a, sorry, that's, a, that's judgmental attitude, I'm sorry. And, and you know, after ages, this kid got up, and he started walking down the side of the tent. And then he walked down the aisle, and he stopped there. And when he got there, we saw he was shaking. And I said, are you Sam? And he said, yes. I said, did you say that to your friend this morning? He said, yes. I said, are you ready to give your life to Jesus? He said, yes. My colleague Andy got down off the stage and stood with him and others prayed with him. And in front of 8,000 people, he gave his life to Jesus. And do you know, as he was walking back, we saw his friend running to him and the two of them hugging and crying together. And my question was, Lord, why did, why did you have to put me through that? Why couldn't we have done it with a whole load of other things at the end? Why did it have to be so theatrical? You know I have a heart condition. Why did you put me through that, Lord? And do you know, I, I, I realized when he said amen and he gave his life to Jesus, because at that point, 8,000 young people spontaneously stood and clapped and cheered the Lord and Sam. And the Lord said to me, that's why. Because last night you were rejoicing over 200. And I wanted to show you that I will stop a whole meeting for one Sam. For one Sam. Because that's how I love the world, one person at a time. Do you know what? I think that's a lesson none of us will ever forget. It's a sermon that never has to be preached to 8,000 of us. Because we saw it. And that's how it works. And the reason I, I'd love to tell you the story of, oh, yes, well, I knew it was the Lord. Oh, yes, da, da, da. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's in weakness. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And I want to encourage you with all that I am and all that I have as individuals and as a church. Keep obedient. Press in. It'll feel like dirty water but he'll turn it into wine in your hands. It'll feel like you're drowning, but he'll hold your hand. He'll hold your hand.